come to me I hear a sound busy like traffic Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Sibel Kaler, and on this show I bring you professors, faculty, and grad students from around the UCI campus and beyond talking about their research. Today we have Dr. Keith Danner, a lecturer of composition here at UCI, here to talk about his research on climate change and his work as the local president of UCAFT, the lecturers' union at the University of California. How did you get started studying climate change, and what kind of research do you do concerning it? Well, uh, I have a daughter who's 12, and that is what drives my um, research and what drives my activism. Um, you know, my training is, uh, I have a PhD in English literature, um, so I'm trained in how to do research and how to think which I think is enough uh, qualification really for anybody to think about climate change and, and act on it. What I've tried to think about is it's sort of like you have to sort of set out like, okay, what's the situation we're in? And then um, historically, what have been the things that have allowed big social change to happen? Because in order to solve climate change, it actually has to be quite big uh, changes. And what can we expect the next few decades to look like with climate changes? It's hard to say. Um, we do know that the next 10 years are key. And the reason that the next 10 years are key is that if, if we don't um, take significant action and cut global greenhouse emissions by 50% in the next 10 years, there's a very high risk of reaching what are called tipping points, at which point the thermostat of the Earth is so out of whack that it becomes, in all likelihood, beyond human control. So that's, that's why it's really important that we do things in the next 10 years. So right now we're at about one degree Celsius of, of heating, and we can already see the effects that that's having in terms of fires and droughts and flooding and the way that that is affecting sea level rise and things like that. And that's at one degree. And it's also affecting things like, there's a recent study that indicates if, if the temperature is one degree Celsius above what it normally is in the week before a woman gives birth, the uh, percentage of births that end up being stillbirths where the child doesn't live is increased by 6%. That's the average. And of course, as is the case with all these things, um, if the mother is black, because of the effects of systemic racism, those numbers go up. So we can already see now those kinds of things. But the, the thing that I sort of like to point to, partially because it's, it's sort of hard to figure out like how much you want to scare people and how much you want to give them hope. You know, it's a little tricky. But the thing that is scary, <laughs> one of the things that's scary to me is the, the collapse of the food system is possible. And just to give an example of how that could happen, there's a recent study that indicated that if we had something like a four-year drought in the United States, the United States is one of the world's leading producers of wheat, and wheat is one of the most important commodities in terms of the world food supply. 
And if that happened, it would have cataclysmic effects across the globe for food prices, for food availability. That's one concrete sort of horror. And then, you know, there are other horrors you could play out. I mean, it's possible, I think, that you could have a situation where as things spun out of control, if we didn't manage to fix it, where you could have a situation where the wealthiest people started to hire their own private militias and, you know, you can get pretty dystopian pretty quickly. I mean, one of the things that the UN um, IPCC report, I think that was fall of 2018, one of the things they said in that report is that it would make a governed society not possible. And the right. reason is that the, the inequalities and the food scarcity would be so great that um, the rulers would say that they couldn't have democracy. Places that have democracy would get rid of democracy if they could get away with it. Obviously, we would try to stop them. But, um, you know, that that's, that that's what could happen. So it's, you know, it's obviously uh, you know, pretty, some pretty scary scenarios in terms of if we don't fix things. What yeah. could happen? Yeah, definitely very terrifying. Yep. What actions in the U.S. do you think human actions are contributing most to climate change? Well, I mean, it seems like in the U.S. it's like um, you know more than half is um, transportation and electricity. Those are the sort of the biggest. I think it's twenty-eight percent and twenty-seven percent for transportation and electricity. Uh, agriculture is something like 10%. Industry, I think, is 22%, something like that. But the, you know, the EPA every year um, you know, puts out various um, statistics. I don't know if the Trump administration has been fiddling with that or not, but it's, uh, the Trump administration has been doing things to try to obscure uh, good information about climate change. Right. And how much do you think that individuals like you and me have the power to try to combat this and how much do you think lies with you know the government and larger corporations ability to change the direction of things you know one thing that's interesting is that the effect on the emissions uh, carbon emissions of the coronavirus lockdown were sort of surprisingly small to some people the estimates are that emissions have been down between five and seven percent that that's, you know, that at the height of the lockdown, they were down like 17 or 30%, depending who you talk to. But that overall for the year, we can expect a, a, a decrease of, you know, maybe between 5 and 7%. And people are like, what are you talking about? I was in my damn living room for months on end. Like, how can this be? And it just shows the limits of, I mean, I want to be careful here. It shows the limits of individual action, right? Like I did this thing even if it was done on a massive scale. And it just shows that there are certain things that are just part of the current structure of our um, economy. I mean, just to take, for example, you know, the, the fact that, that a lot of cooking and heating is done with natural gas. The, the rule is this, if you burn it, it's not good, right? <laughs> so, so natural gas sometimes just, and tries to sort of market itself as like clean, you know, because it's not coal. But anything you're burning is not good, right? The, the good things are wind, water, and solar, period. All of that is sort of baked in, right? We don't have um, government policies that are actually encouraging people to take their gas range out and put it in an electric one. I don't like the sort of 
emphasis on individual action because I think it makes people feel like basically it makes people feel more guilty than is appropriate. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because, because they're the, the people who should feel guilty are the people who are the most powerful people. And they, if you go, if you gauge by their actions, they do not feel guilty at all. I mean, you know, no one should go out and seek to just burn things randomly just because, right? But also the, the way that we actually can change things is by, is by coming together. And, you know, before the shutdown, we were on the verge of organizing for the largest worldwide day of action for climate change in the history of the world. It was going to be in April for Earth Day, and there was going to be millions and millions of people around the world. And that wasn't going to be sufficient to do it, but it was the process of really building a movement. You know, you were asking about like the power of governments. I mean, the power of governments and of corporations is greater than the power of people. But the thing is that people can actually influence what corporations and businesses do. Even the, the University of California, students and faculty and other workers have organized to pressure the University of California to divest from fossil fuels, which they then did. You know, that, I think it was $128 billion that the University of California had invested in fossil fuels, and they divested all of it. They finished. It's done. And that's an incredible thing. And the whole divestment movement, which has happened over the past, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, that whole movement when it started out, it was very small. And now it's like $14 trillion that has been divested from fossil fuels. And if you read some of the financial reports from the coal companies, they, they whine about it. Mm-hmm. They have trouble getting financing. It has, I mean, coal seems to be the one that has been the most vulnerable to this kind of pressure. But it, it, has, it has made a difference. And if you there. were to switch from a like a normal car to an electric car, but the electricity wasn't from a clean energy source like hydro or solar. Is that still significantly better than a gas car? I don't think so. I don't actually know the answer to that question. I thought about this question because my mother-in-law lives in Pennsylvania and the, the grid in Pennsylvania has a lot of coal in it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, so you buy an electric car and you're basically running your car on coal. You know, that can't be good. I mean, ultimately, we need a society where we have freely available um, public transportation, you know, where people have like an electric bike that gets them to the bus stop mm-hmm. and the bus is an electric bus. And if you think about that world, it's very different from the world we're in now. And that's why I say like that you have to think about like what are the things that have driven, you know, huge change, right? Because if you think about it, that's what's really needed. Huge, right. huge change, right? So on the one hand, it means workers, high carbon workers who are making gasoline cars, those workers have to be retrained. The ideal thing to retrain them to do is to build electric buses, electric trains, electric, you know, things that are getting their um, electricity from, as you say, from renewable sources. Um, So that, you know, that sort of change is obviously huge and it involves changing the way that we live, but it's an incredibly cleaner life too. Mm -hmm. I mean, something like, 
I have a statistic here somewhere, some unbelievable number, some, uh, percentage of African-Americans live near um, some kind of power generating plant or refinery. It's, a, it's, a, it's an astronomically high number. I don't remember it exactly. It's like over 50%. Well, in the world that we have to build, mm-hmm. we have to build it. All of those are gone. All of that pollution is gone. And, and that means that the systemic environmental racism that is you know, now currently targeted at African-Americans and Latinos as well, um, you know, it means that they can breathe. Right. African-Americans are something like three times more likely than white people to die of asthma. That's why, you know, there's a lot of environmentalists are saying, look, it's not the same thing as police violence. But we people who understand and study environmental racism, we know what I can't breathe means. Right. It has a deep history. Yeah. And what kind of actions do you think the U.S. government needs to take within the next few decades to try to halt climate change and other countries as well? Well, I mean, you know, because I'm American, I feel like it's my uh, my responsibility is to put pressure on my own government, you know, and yeah. I, I feel like that's that's enough. You know, I, I have to trust other people in other places to, to put pressure on their governments. But there needs to be a multi-trillion dollar effort to convert everything to wind, water, and solar. So everything needs to be converted to wind, water, and solar. Now, and then also efficiency. You know, on the one hand, there are some things on our side in terms of science. The engineering of solar uh, technology in particular has been unbelievable. Ten years ago, it cost like between 35, on average, between 35 and 40 cents per kilowatt hour for solar. And right now, it's down in 10 years. It's down between 4 and $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. And there are two places where they're building these huge solar complexes, one in Portugal and one in Saudi Arabia, where they're anticipating that they're going to be able to get down to a penny. So the costs of solar are just plunging. And that obviously is worrisome to the oil and gas executives who recently pushed successfully the Trump administration to get rid of a tax break for rooftop solar. Unless it gets changed, the, the, the tax break for rooftop solar is going to phase out to nothing by 2022. Wow. So basically we need to do the opposite of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of glib to say, you know, think about what the Trump administration is doing and do the opposite. <laughs> but like the, we need to be spending huge, huge resources on um, wind, water, and solar, you know, clean transportation, clean electricity for homes, clean electricity for industry, all of those things. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about the way these comes together, obviously the collapse of the economy, you know, 40 million people unemployed with the coronavirus is, is hideous. It's awful. But the truth is the one thing outside of a war, which we don't want, um, that could actually be big enough of a stimulus to the economy to get people to work is something like the Green New Deal. Because we need to spend trillions of dollars on all of this infrastructure. That means just like jobs, 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 so many jobs that people need to be doing. 
everything from wetlands restoration to building electric buses. I mean, there's just huge numbers of jobs that are available if we spend the money. Why do you think it's taken our country so long to even take climate change seriously? So Bill McKibben wrote his book, um, The End of Nature in 1989. That's the first sort of major book on climate change. But Exxon knew about climate change in the late 70s. They were worried. Um, they were so worried that they actually increased the height of their drilling platforms because they were anticipating sea level rise. So they knew. And then they um, lied. They hid that research and they systematically funded climate denial for decades. Um, that's what happened. You know, they, they, they just systematically denied it so that they could keep making record profits throughout the 90s and 2000s. Wow. Horrifying. Yeah, yeah it is horrifying. And, and, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, it's a crime against humanity. And I, I think people like that should be put on trial. Uh, and, and put in jail. Absolutely. Switching topics a little bit, you serve as the local president for UCAFT. Could you tell us a little bit about the union and what some of your goals are? Sure. As it happens, we are... Um, so let's see. Well, the first question to ask is, uh, what is a lecturer? <laughs> because people might not know that, right? So a lecturer is not the same as a professor. A lecturer is a teaching faculty. And we don't, um, as part of our jobs, have research requirements, although many of us do research also. So um, uh, I'm not one who would say that professors don't work hard. They work really, really hard, but they don't teach as much. So like a professor will teach four classes a year, have a lot of... Um, administrative and uh, responsibilities on committees and things like that. And lecturers teach eight or nine classes a year and don't have a research profile and also don't, um, well, don't get paid for research anyhow. And uh, also uh, don't have any real power in the university itself. So the University of California is what's called faculty governed and uh, lecturers are not part of that governance structure. We are actually negotiating uh, a new contract right now. And one of the things that we're very concerned about is job insecurity. Um, you know, when you, in the United States, the way our system works, when you lose your job, you lose your health care. So that's obviously very bad in a pandemic um, or any time, but especially in a pandemic. But so I, I've been at the university for a very long time, so I have a certain amount of job security. But anyone who is a lecturer and has been here less than six years, they can be let go at any time. Like at the end of the year, they could just let you go without explanation. Um, so it's like um, temporary work, really. And that is... It's not good for lecturers. It's not good for students. Um, you know, it's not good to have a sort of lack of consistency uh, in the teaching core. 
it's not good to have a lack of institutional memory, things like that. So one of the things we, you know, the university says like, well, we need six years. And I was like, and we just don't believe it. You don't need six years to tell whether or not we're excellent, right? That's the, we have what's called an excellence review in the fifth year. And then if you, if you get it, then you, you're a continuing appointee. Anyhow, that's, those are some of the things that we are working on. And what have been some of the achievements in the last several years? Well, you know, the biggest achievement of the UCAFT um, for lecturers in the University of California system is the continuing appointment system. Because what used to happen all the time, and now happens only sometimes, is that the university would hire people um, for four or five years and they would get raises, and then the university would say, oh, those people are too expensive. We're just going to get rid of them and hire new people who are cheaper. And they, we call this churning, where you're just like churning through lecturers and hiring people who are younger and newer, and you pay them less. So um, we, I don't know how many years ago, but we had a strike, a short strike, maybe 15 years ago, in which we won a contract which guaranteed the continuing appointment. So it's, it's not great, but it's much better because it means that we have this, this provision where you can't just get rid of someone because they're in their fifth year and they're about to become a continuing appointee. And we have, there's basically a path where people can have a career, right? You can, um, I've been a lecturer at the University of California for many years and, you know, I have a, I have a teaching career, which is good. Um, and it's better than a lot of you know, people who are not in a, a sort of well-defended contract like we have at the University of California. You can end up teaching at like four or five different community colleges and still make less than I make at the University of California. So it's obviously you know, such a nice thing to be able to work only at one campus and um, to, after six years, have a, a certain measure of job security. Right. And I saw that you'd also done some work to um, try to get sick leave for lectures. Is that is that correct? Uh, are you talking about the particular case of the lecturer who needed to have brain surgery last year? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. That, so, yeah, we don't have sick leave, technically. Um, neither do professors. Uh, it's very weird when you get your paycheck. It says vacation zero, <laughs> sick leave zero. <laughs> but um, the it's not funny. I don't know why I laugh. But anyhow, the, um, the what happened with this um, comrade of mine, Andrew, is that he needed to have brain surgery, and he um, they wanted to not basically pay him. They wanted him to take unpaid leave, um, and we put together an online petition and, you know, Andrew Tonkovich is a force and has formed hundreds of relationships with literary people and with activists. And so when we said <laughs> that he was being denied paid leave, um, we had this, you know, change.org petition, like the petition just went bananas because he knows so many people and because it was such an outrageous thing and because people are so angry about the state of healthcare, 
So like the petition started from people who knew him, which was like hundreds. And then it spread from there to like people who are mad about U.S. healthcare, which is, you know, millions, right? Like we're all mad about U.S. healthcare. And then that led to some articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education and various newspapers. And the university was embarrassed and it was a good victory. So that's a different kind of victory. That's a nice like grassroots organizing victory as opposed to like, well, wait, you can't do that. That's not what it says in the contract. Do you think that the university should hire more professors to try to take some of the workload off of um, TAs and lectures? That's an interesting question. I mean, you know, at, at some point historically, the university decided that they wanted to do education on the cheap. But I will say that, you know, it would have been better. I mean, you know, it's funny now, like, I don't, I don't want, you know, obviously I don't want them to like replace me with two professors, right? (laughs) Because I want my job, you know what I mean? Unless one of those professors is me. But historically they, they have, you know, graduate students now, they face this job market that's really grim. But if universities in California and across the country had hired professors instead of hiring lecturers and part-time adjunct faculty, there wouldn't be a job market problem for PhDs. As I say, to replace you know, the thousands of lecturers at the University of California would take twice as many professors. Right. So do you, do you think the current length of like required schooling compared to wages for lectures is ultimately unsustainable? You know, the things that are sustainable depends on whether or not people will put up with them, right? It's like the 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 employers will do to you almost anything that you will let them. It all depends on the fight, you know, like if the we, we got the job security, small though it is, that we have from a strike. And I think that in order to get what we need, I think any group of workers really has to be organizing and think about um, the possibility of a strike. Right. And do you think the University of California, do you think they have some issues with the transparency and the pay gaps within their faculty and staff? The inequality within the University of California is terrible. So for, um, you know, for a lecturer to make, you know, $50,000 a year while the president of the university makes, I think his salary is going to be something like $800,000 or something like that, the Drake when he comes in. So that's just an outrageous gap. But it is dwarfed by the gap in the outside world. You know, like the idea that you know the 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 tens of billions of dollars that the billionaires have gotten since the pandemic hit, right? Take you know Jeff Bezos. You know his wealth has gone up by you know tens of billions of dollars while there are people who are about to lose $600 a week right. in unemployment benefits, or that, so they, they just did lose that, that benefit. 
So, I mean, on, you know, but still, just because it's worse outside the University of California doesn't mean that it's bad. I mean, it obviously is quite bad to have that level of inequality. It's not something that I think is really acceptable. And to close off the interview, um, what, what advice would you give to anyone from any job who was scared or discouraged about unionizing? Yeah, people are often nervous about unionizing. I know that the wages that we have that are better than community college wages are better because of our union and the pay increases we've gotten over the past 15 years more than pay for my union dues. Yeah, the union is like the, the most basic organizational structure for defending you. If you don't have a union, you're just by yourself. And if there's something you don't like, the only thing that could happen is maybe the benevolence of your boss, which is, you know, that could happen, but it could also not happen. You know? The other thing that I would like to see us have in our contract is seniority rights. Like for people who are before a pre-6 review, if the department decides, well, we, we like the person who's in year one better than we like the person in year five, they can hire the person in year one and get rid of the person in year five. And one of the reasons that unions traditionally like seniority when you've evaluated people to be good at their jobs, the, the reason that we like seniority is that it gets rid of unconscious bias. Sexism can't be in the mix because it's just seniority. You know, Racism can't be in the mix because it's just seniority. And so like that, any unconscious bias is just out the window. And, um, that's just one of the, I think, many benefits of unions. Um, not that there aren't problems. I could talk about those too. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and I really enjoyed this interview. Oh, yeah, it's been nice to meet you, Sybil. Take care. You too. That was Dr. Keith Danner, a lecturer who teaches composition at UCI and studies climate change as well as being the local president of the University of California American Federation of Teachers. I'm Sibel Kaler, and this has been Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. To listen to past episodes about a variety of topics in academia, and to learn more about the show, you can find our website at bit.ly slash officehourskuci. I hope you have a great day, stay safe, and be kind to each other out there.